Glad everybody is here with us this morning. Uh, Port Lavaca, Lone Tree, and Victoria, and everybody watching online the summer season out on vacation. So glad you guys are with us this morning. If you're new here or if you've been gone for a couple of weeks, we are in the middle of a series called Mastermind. And what's going on in this series is we are looking at the book of Ephesians and really asking the question, what are some assumptions that we have made? Because sometimes assumptions are um, dangerous. They're not always the most healthy thing. Like we make assumptions and we live our life as if they are true. We just go through life not thinking twice about it. Like when we were kids and our parents told us, you have to wait 30 minutes after you eat before you go back in the pool. And we assumed it was true. We didn't know until we became adults that our whole life has been a lie, you know, and we like went back and like, hey, we tell small kids the exact same thing. If your kids in here today, I'm just kidding. They're, they're serious about that. But we, we assume that they are true, right? For example, I was, um, I was actually officiating a wedding in, in Round Rock yesterday, and it was a good friend of mine that I'd known since, uh, since I was in college. And when we were at Tarleton, we had this conviction and said, man, if we're going to be followers of Jesus, we're going to stay away from the party scene. So then the question was, well, what are we going to do with our time, especially in the summers, you know, when everybody leaves town, you have a bunch more free time in your hands. And so we got a group of people together and we played like sand volleyball like every single night. And of course, I was in like the prime shape of my life. And so I got like decent at it. I thought I was pretty good at it. And well, fast forward years later at his wedding, and we were feeling nostalgic. So the night before his wedding, we went out and played some sand volleyball. And I assumed that I would play the exact same way. That was a very bad assumption, all right? Because I had in my mind, you know, jumping up, spiking it. Like I could still play. The reality looked like a baby deer had just somehow come out of anesthesia, you know, and ran onto the court and said, I want to play. That's what it looked like. And some assumptions, they're just, they just, they don't matter that much, right? Like I just sacrificed my pride a little bit because no matter what, I was still going to try really hard because, you know, there's really obnoxious people that try too hard and pick up sports. I'm one of them. So it didn't hurt anything, right? But I want to ask the question, are there some, Port Lavaca, Lone Tree, Victoria, are there some assumptions that we make that actually do hurt us? Are there some assumptions that we make in our faith that actually are damaging to us? Because we live as if they are true. We don't think twice. We just assume it to be true. And I want to ask, are there some assumptions that are hurting us? There are assumptions we make about God about ourselves, about our relationship to Him and who we are, are there assumptions that hurt? And I believe there are. And I want to look at one of them today. In Ephesians 4, chapter, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, we'll be there all day today. Um, we won't be skipping around too much. You're going to turn there with me in your phones, tablets, paper Bibles, however you like to. You can look along with a Parkway app and follow along well. Ephesians 4, verse 17, Paul says this, he said, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. And I'll unpack what he means by Gentiles there because he's using it in a really unique way. In the futility of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding, 
and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. Now, usually when the Bible talks about Gentiles, it's drawing a comparison. There's Jews, the chosen people of God in the Old Testament, who had the law and, and knew God. And then there was everybody else, who were the Gentiles. Here, Paul's using it a little bit differently. He's referring to people who do not know about God or knew, know any of the law, but he's more so in this instance referring to those who had not yet believed in Christ. He is referring to those who had not come to the saving relationship with Christ and were not pursuing after them. We're not pursuing after Christ. We're not wanting to know God more. And so because of that, they acted according to their sinful desires. Romans 3.23, we all have sin. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And when we have not been saved by Christ, we've not been saved by grace, and we just allow our sinful desires to take over, it ends up looking like Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. We just kind of cave into it. And this little soapbox moment, just don't mind me here. This isn't the main point of the message, but I want you to understand something. The world is going to act like that. The world is going to act according to sinful desires until they come to know Christ. That is how they will act. And so there's two things that we can do. We can either look out at those who don't know Christ and just go, Mm, 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 and just like walk away and just kind of wash our hands clean. Or we can have this conviction and say, do not know Christ, therefore it is my calling to go and share Christ with the world who is screaming from the rooftops they do not know Him. That's a little soapbox moment. We're going to set that aside right now. Let's keep on reading. All right, it says this in verse 20 through 21. He draws comparison. That's the world, that those who do not know Christ. That, however... <laughs> Anytime there's a however in there, you know something really important is about to be said. Like your parents ever do that. However, and they like turn their head with it. However, is not the way of life you learned. You can almost hear your parents saying it. You knew better. That's not the way you were raised. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him according with the truth that is in Jesus. What Paul is saying here is when the world acts like the world and follows their sinful desires, that's to be expected. When we do it, it's problematic. When a believer in Christ lives in that, that is problematic. We were called to be different. And not just a little bit different. We were called to be radically different. We were called, according to Scripture, to lay down our lives before Christ and say, God, this is all yours, and being transformed completely. Every single last part of our lives. Not through willpower, because we believed in Christ. Christ has transformed us. Every single part of our lives. Not as a way to earn our salvation, but as a response to God's grace. Every single part of our lives transformed. Now, when I say that, what instantly happens within us is we have this defensive reaction to that. The second we hear that claim that we can be transformed, that all of our lives can be transformed by the gospel, that we can live a life that actually does look like Jesus, we get a little bit defensive. I think the first thing we say is, that could never happen for me. 
We said to ourselves, that could happen, as Mike said last week. It's Memorial Day weekend, so like for all 20 of us that were here, you know, like, like Mike would say, that, that's true for like those preacher boys, right? But that couldn't be true for me. Well, it can be. Oh, that could be true for the, the Sunday school teacher, the small group leader, fill in the blank, whatever Christian you want to put in there that we look up to. That can be true for them, but not me. We make ourselves this lower tier of Christianity almost, but it's not true. The gospel is capable of transforming every single last one of us. And I want to challenge you on this. When we question if God can transform us as individuals, are we questioning ourselves? Or are we actually questioning God in that moment? Think of it this way. Imagine you're going into a major surgery, okay? And they're, they're putting you under, you know, you can feel the anesthesia coming on. Hopefully you haven't said anything embarrassing. And, and you're just about to go under and you see your doctor walk in, who unfortunately looks a lot like the student and college pastor at Parkway Church. And like I walk in there, I have the gown on and everything, and I say, this is going to be great, don't worry. Who here is terrified in that moment? You're lying, you should be, all right? The last science class I took in high school was aquatic science. I made a B. You better be terrified in that moment, right? I am not competent. If it's tonsils, you're probably not going to make it, okay? Why? Because I am not your surgeon, I am not competent in that. Whatever ailment you have, I am not helping, okay? <laughs> I am not helping you in that moment. The question is, do we have confidence in God as our healer, as the one who transforms us? We think our ailment, whatever our unique sin patterns, we all have sin, but I think we have sin patterns that are unique to us. And sometimes we can say, oh, well, I have this in my life. There's no way that... God could transform that. That sin pattern is not new to God. That sin pattern, God doesn't see that and go, man, I've never seen that before. It's not the case. It's not new to Him. The question is, are we questioning ourselves? Or are we actually questioning the power of our Creator and our Savior? I think for others of us, maybe we'll say, well, that's being legalistic. That's perfectionism. That's not perfectionism. The, the Pharisees were perfectionists. The Pharisees were legalists. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm not talking about let's do all of these things so God will love us. God's already loved us, but it's His love and the power of the gospel that transforms us. I think for some of us, we'll question it maybe because we're shaming ourselves. Sometimes we overlook our sin. Sometimes we put a magnifying glass on our sin. We have this Eeyore syndrome I'm going to earn credit with all the 40 and above crowd today. The Eeyore syndrome, and we are, we, we always put ourselves down. For those of us who are younger than me, YouTube it, it's great. It's the classics. We have this Eeyore syndrome in our minds, and we always put ourselves down. We always beat ourselves down, reminding us of all of our failures, and we walk in shame. And shame cripples us. We're not called to question God's ability to transform us. We have confidence in it. And we are not called to, to live in the same trap the Pharisees fall to. We're not called to live in shame. We're called to a glorious fourth option to simply say, yes, I believe, God, that you can transform every single last bit of my life. 
And I want to encourage you right now. Do you answer that question? If I believe that God can transform every part of my life with yes. Because we have to cross that line first. You don't know all the answers yet. You don't know the next steps in it. But we have to establish a confidence in it. Do you answer that with a yes? And I encourage you to do that. Not just with the, the nice Sunday school answer, but with a confidence saying, yes, I believe that Christ can transform me. Because that's a burning question. Do we assume that we are something else that cannot be transformed? Or we place a confidence that every part of our lives, even the part of your life you're thinking of right now that you've been struggling with for years, you have a confidence that Christ can transform that. And what does it look like to have that confidence? Well, Paul explains it a bit more in verse 22. Look at this. He says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life, the, what he was talking about beforehand, the when you acted before you knew Christ, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. There's kind of two components to this. There's the theological side of it, which is our old self is our old sinful desires. Okay, The way we act when we don't try and correct what we're doing, right? Our old sinful desires. The good news of the gospel is Christ died on the cross, forgiving us of our sins, and he was buried. And scripture says our sins were buried with him. Our old self was buried with him. When he rose again to a new life, we have a new life in him. Sin has been defeated. The old us is dead. Now, here's what that doesn't mean. That doesn't mean when we believe in Christ, we wake up the next day and we're like, all my problems are gone. And we ever made that assumption before? You believed in Jesus, you woke up the next day and you're like, I don't think it took. I need to do that again. Like, I still got some problems. We'll go back and do it again. That's not what it means. What it means is the absolute power of sin in our lives has been conquered. So before, we didn't have a say-so in it. We were going to live a lifestyle of sin, but now sin has lost its absolute power over us. But look what it says. It says, put off your old self. That's kind of the fill in the blank, actually. Put off your old self. Here's the thing. If Christ has done that for us, why are we putting off our old self? It's a great question, isn't it? If Christ has done this for us, why are we putting off our old self? The thing is this. We have a natural tendency because our old sinful patterns are habits. They're ingrained. They're comfortable. We know them. They're what we're used to. And so we will just hold on to them for dear life. The old us is dead, but we're carrying it around day after day. It's like a corpse that's there by us. It's our old self, but we won't let it go. And so I'll encourage you to, is whatever it is, that part of your old self, those old sinful desires, they may be comfortable. They may even be what people know you by. You have to let them go. They have been conquered. They have been defeated. Let them go and put off the old self. But it doesn't stop there. He explains it a bit more in verse 23. He says, "...to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness." So once again, as we have ever seen somebody get baptized, we, we talk about this. You are buried in His death and risen again to a new life. We have a new life in Christ. It's a gift to us. We are indwelled with the Holy Spirit, God Himself, that allows us to live a new life in Christ. And that's a gift to us. We didn't earn it. It was a gift. But once again, Paul says, put on the new self. 
What does he mean by that? It means having a confidence in the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life that God can and will and is transforming you. We put on that new self. We, we live and walk in that confidence day by day. And so I challenge you, do you believe in your heart of hearts that Christ is making you new? That you're a new creation today? That through Christ, through the gospel, you can be transformed? Where is your confidence in that? Because that's not something we just wake up one day and say, I'm confident in this. We walk in that confidence day by day by day. We are saved once for all of eternity. In a moment, we believe in Christ and we are saved, but we grow in our discipleship as a lifetime decision and a lifetime process that takes a long time and it's a messy process, but we put on that new self because we're confident that Christ is doing a work in us, that he's transforming us, that we say, God, I know that you are doing this. The question is, how do we do that day by day? How do we put on that new self and walk in that confidence day by day? Paul explains a bit more in verse 25. Look at this. He says, Therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. And in your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. That last little part there. Do not give the devil a foothold. The imagery that's describing is kind of this sheer rock face. And you're, cry, you're climbing up it. You're looking for any handholds and footholds to get into. Now, we think of that and we think of, <laughs> we think of today, like we go and do rock climbing indoors in the AC in some, some park. And they put all the harnesses on us and the cabling and all that. Some 18-year-old there who's walking is like, you are totally safe. Safe should not be like preceded by totally or definitely totes. Uh, no, no, I'm out. But we have all of this safety equipment. There's a little padded sot in the bottom, so just in case you know he's not paying attention, you're you're okay. Hopefully, right? That's what we think of. That was not there when the Bible talks about. Well, we need to hear it the way the original audience heard it. Climbing a sheer rock face. There is nothing there saving you. It would be freestyle, right? The only confidence is that gravity will do its job if you lose your foothold. Now, what it's saying is, do not give the devil a foothold. It's referring to sin in our lives. And the sins it mentions aren't ones that just blow us away. <laughs> Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood, speak truthfully to your neighbor, and in your anger do not sin. They're seemingly small sins as we would classify them, not the way God classifies them, but they're a foothold. They're a foothold for the enemy. I want to challenge you and ask you, what is your foothold? The ones it gives is angerness and bitterness specifically, and that's a foothold because when we are angry and bitter, we're living in hypocrisy. We're saying, thank you God so much for you saving me. But my coworker, my family member, my close friend, I, re I refuse to show them mercy because they did not earn it when we never once earned mercy. It's hypocrisy. It's a foothold. But I want to challenge you. What's your foothold? What is the foothold in your life? Because here's the thing. 
the image that's painted here is someone hanging on to a sheer rock face, the enemy, Satan himself, looking for any foothold or handhold, and he will find them if they are there. He's an opportunist. He's an opportunist. He does not miss his opportunity to enter into our lives. And he will use whatever opportunity we give him. What is your foothold in your life? Because as long as it's there, he will hold on to it. But it doesn't stop there. It's not just removing the footholds. It kind of gives us a way to actually remove those footholds in verse 28. Look at this. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer. Well, of course, but he goes on. But must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Port Lavaca, Lone Tree, Victoria, it's an image of like Acts chapter 2. The early church sharing with those in need, those who weren't able to pay rent, those who were going hungry. He keeps on going, verse 29, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Echoes of the Sermon on the Mount. It's not just that we don't steal and we don't put people down. It's what have you given How have you built somebody up? And that's hard because our stuff is our stuff. It's not your stuff. Don't take my stuff. I'm not giving you my stuff. It's my stuff, right? Or some of us because we live in the great state of America, right? We speak the native tongue of sarcasm. And it doesn't come very natural to us to build someone up. And so what it's challenging us to do here is is how are we being of benefit? How are we be the benefit? Fill in the blank here. Because it's not simply about, I'm just going to sin less. It's how do I actually be the benefit? Because when you actually say, I'm going to be the benefit of someone, it's not this, I'm just going to not say bad things about someone or cut someone down or gossip about someone. How am I going to build them up when they're not even there? You ever found out secondhand that somebody was building you up when you weren't there? It's the greatest feeling ever. Or you had a compliment that I swear just kept you going for days on end. When somebody gave something to you and you didn't even see it coming, when we are the benefit to someone, we actually in the process remove the footholds in our lives that the enemy was using as an opportunist. So we remove the footholds, but it almost segues straight into actually being of the benefit. Because as we are being the benefit, we actually remove the footholds in our lives. But here's the hard question. Because we're not going to leave this as some hypothetical. I want you to put a name to it. Who is benefiting from your faith? That's hard, isn't it? Who today is benefiting from your faith? Because our faith is between us and God. It's an individual faith, right? Yes and amen. But it's meant to benefit others. It's a personal faith that benefits others as we lead them closer to knowing Christ through our actions and all that we do, as our life becomes totally transformed by the gospel. Let's keep on reading. Verse 31, he says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to anyone, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Now that last line, just as in Christ, God forgave you in verse 32, kind of sticks out a little bit. 
because this standard it's making is Jesus. He's saying, you forgive others, not because I said so, but because Christ did it. And so I challenge you, uh, fill in the blank here, make Jesus your standard. Make him your standard. You say, that's a really high standard. Yes, I agree. It's a very, very, very high standard. But I say that because that's what we're actually called to have our standard. But we as human beings, we like to choose different standards. We like to choose the lowest common denominator as our standard, right? We'll look around to our left and our right. Not right now, that would be weird. But we, we look around in our lives and we find people to be our standards. And it's not usually the person who is just nailing it following Christ. We look for people who are stumbling. We look to co-workers. We look to family members who are stumbling. We justify in our minds, well, at least I'm not doing that, therefore I'm good. They are not your standard. Whatever their name is, Susan or Dave or whoever, me a new person they named Susan or Dave, and they're gonna be like, What did I do? Right? They are not our worship pastor Dave is sitting in the back going, like, What did I do, man? The, the other people are not our standard, regardless of their name or who they are. Other people are never our standard, even if they're a great standard. Christ is our standard. And you say, Man, it's a high standard, but here's the thing: as we pursue after Christ as Jesus literally said to Peter, come and follow me. As we follow him, an extremely high standard. Are we ever going to be exactly like Jesus? No. But as we pursue more and more like him, we reach higher and higher and higher to be more like him. And we're transformed. Because we raise to the highest standard we can have. That is our standard. Imagine if you went to a gym and you go to the gym... You can even go to Planet Fitness. All right, there we go. It still counts. And we say, well, you know what? I can go farther on the treadmill or I've lost more pounds than so-and-so. You raise your standards to whoever is around you. If your standard is the amazing track athletes, you raise your standard to them. Make your standard Christ and Christ alone. I want to skip ahead to Ephesians 5, verse 3. It says this. Now, if you are quote-unquote, old school, and you brought your paper Bible with you. There you go. I'm relating to you today. Or if you have your phones or things like that, I want you to know it's a great habit to mark up our Bible. You say, it's, it's God's holy word. I asked him. He's good with it. You can write in, all right? It's a great thing to underline and highlight, and, and I want to point out some words here. They're great to highlight and underline. Verse 3 in chapter 5, he says, But among you there must not be a hint of sexual immorality. He didn't say there should not be much or a lot of. He said a hint. You can underline that in there. Highlight it. Because it kind of pierces us to our core. Not even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity. Not much, not a lot of, any. Or greed because those are improper for God's holy people. I think Paul's real specific there, and he says not a hint of and not any because he knows our hearts, the heart of every human being, mine included. We will, we will get this mindset that there's an acceptable amount of sin. Or even more so, we will accept sin that culture has said is acceptable, right? Now, going back to the beginning of the message, 
We've already established the world who doesn't know Christ is going to act as if they don't know Christ. They are not our standard. Culture and society is not your standard. I don't care what generation you are a part of or where you grew up in. There's not a decade that was our standard. Not even the good old days because culture was never our standard because culture no matter when it was, is going to be driven. It's going to have those in it who do not know Christ. Therefore, their standards are not going to be Christ. So there's going to be sins in a culture that are acceptable to them. But I challenge you to this. Don't accept acceptable sins. Don't accept them. You say there's no such thing. Exactly. Our culture may say it's okay. That does not make it okay for us. Our culture... As it was actually talking about sexual immorality, our culture puts an expiration date on sexual immorality. They say, you're an adult now. Do as you will. That's society, not Bible. I challenge you to question in your own mind what sins have become so common in our culture and in our friend circles that we don't even see them anymore. What have we just accepted? Because here's the thing, the acceptable sin we may say in our mind is fine, but it's still the foothold for the enemy that we are talking about. Don't accept acceptable sins. Make Christ your standard. Because Christ did not accept sin in his life. He lived a perfect life. Are we going to live the perfect life? No, but I am saying that as long as we have these acceptable sins in our lives, they're an anchor for us. And we are going nowhere. What is that acceptable sin in your life? Who is your standard? But above all else, what's the why behind all of this? Because the motivation matters, doesn't it? The motivation matters so much. If the motivation, I've always said, is guilt, it won't work. If your motivation for a life that's totally dedicated to Christ is shame or guilt or obligation, it won't work. Or simply because I said so. That will not get you out of the parking lot, all right? Somebody's going to cut you off, and it's just going to go bye-bye, right? <laughs> Apparently not. We're good drivers here. Okay, good news. Port Lavaca Lone Tree, you may be different. I don't know. Here in Victoria, great drivers. But the question is, what is our motivation? What's our why? Paul explains it beautifully, our why, in 5, 1 through 2. Ephesians 5, verse 1 through 2. He says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, as those loved by God, adopted into his family, and walk in the way of love, here we go, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Our why isn't obligation, our why isn't guilt, it's not shame, it's none of those things, it's the gospel, it's Christ on the cross. It's this overwhelming awe and wonder that God himself would send his one and only son down to earth in such meager means, such humble means, live this perfect life that we never could, die on the cross which he did not deserve, that we by all means deserve, that I deserve, that you deserved. And he did it while so many people abandoned him. You see, we can make that a corporate statement or we can make it an individual statement. He died for our sins, but he also died for your sins. He died for mine. He paid the penalty for our sins as individuals and as a body of Christ. He made the ultimate sacrifice for us. Being perfect and blameless the entire time. 
dying so that our sins may be wiped away, rising again three days later, so sin and death was conquered forever. And that is freely given to us. It's not cheap. It's the most costly sacrifice mankind has ever known. It's so freely given to us. That's our motivation for it. See, we are called to walk in a life that honors God, not out of guilt, shame, or obligation, but out of this overwhelming awe and wonder that we are loved by God. And so our natural response when that love of God just transforms every single part of our lives is saying, Christ, this is yours. You can have it all. I'm not who I want to be yet, but I give every single last part of my life to you to transform as I pursue you. As I pursue you more and more and become transformed, I'm sharing the gospel with any single last person that will listen and some that won't. That's our motivation for it. It's not guilt, it's not obligation, it's an overwhelming love of Christ. As we pursue after Him, we're transformed. And I want to just pray for each and every one of us. Some of us, maybe you walked in here today and this is all new to you. Maybe today your actual first step is to believe in Him, to begin that relationship today. Maybe that's your first step. We're going to give you an opportunity to do that today. But for many of us that have believed in Him for years, we're called to have a confidence that the same Savior that has saved us eternally can transform us here, today, and now. And I want to just encourage us to walk in that confidence. Let's pray. Dear Lord, God, you are an amazing Savior. You give mercifully. You love us so much. And we, we never deserved any of it. And we never earned any of it. You gave it to us. This is love that we can't even comprehend. You sent your Son to die for us. That if we believe in Him, we have eternal life. Lord, if there's anyone here today in any of our locations, Lone Tree, Port Lavaca, Victoria, or even watching online right now, wherever they are, they have this newfound knowledge that they are in need of a Savior. You are calling them to believe in You. I pray they may place that faith in You today. Marking that belief, the simple prayer, not magic words, not words that save us, but a prayer that marks our belief in You. Praying, dear Lord, I am broken. I am a, a sinner in need of a Savior. And I believe that Jesus Christ, the one and only Son of God, has died for my sins. That I may know Him. God, I thank you and the heavens rejoice right now as someone has come to know you. Lord, I thank you for that. May they not keep that a secret. May they make that known.